Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shema podcast. I have an amazing question to get an answer to. And I want to do this in the merit of my friend, Danny Katz, who brought this question up at a Shabbos table at Rabbi Yokoff Wolby's house. I thought it'd be a great topic to explore because it's one of those questions where you look at it and it doesn't make any sense. But I love those questions. You know, one of the things that Rabbi Busco brought up, a point he made when we were discussing animal sacrifices, it was so profound that I said, we can stop the podcast here because that piece of wisdom right there says so much. And that is that the Almighty created the Torah in a way that someone who is arrogant can't learn from it. He basically created a safeguard system, a block that only those with humility can enter and learn. And there's so much, like we just covered the partial and the red heifer. Anyone who was arrogant would say, that's nonsense. You have to accept it with humility. Some things will never make any sense. Many things, though, that we can get clarity on, and the rabbis encourage us to ask, help us, we approach it with humility, it takes us to a whole new level. And that's why I get excited when I have a question like this, I can get a proper rabbi on to explain it to us. So what is the topic at hand? We know when the Torah was given, the Almighty gave a set of instructions that the sages should put fences around the Torah, around the mitzvot. So an example of this is that the Torah forbids us from combining meat and milk. And the sages back then knew, I I guess back then, people considered poultry to be meat as well. So they put a fence around the Torah and said, we're also going to forbid combining poultry with milk. Because someone may see me, a great sage, eating an iced chicken and cheese sandwich and think it's okay to slap some cheese on their hamburger. So these things occurred and the Almighty instructed these sages to do this for us and said that becomes our Torah as well. That is how he empowered them to be his co-creators as well. And that's part of our mission. But over time, as Jews became separated, like for instance, you had... Over a thousand years ago, where we became separated, and what is now the Sephardic community and the Ashkenazi community, there was different halakhic decisions being made during that separation. And it continues on to the day. So the, the question I have, and the rabbi I have coming on, I won't keep you waiting anymore. It is Rabbi Yacobian, which I got so much favorable response from all the podcasts I've done with him so far. I'm going to ask him these questions. One, why did the Almighty create this structure, this system, where you could have one Jew doing something similar to another Jew, but one's sinning and one's doing a mitzvah? The second question is, now that we have all come together and there's communication with technology, why aren't we coming together and forming one set of halakha? And if there's a valid reason for it, which I'm sure there is, I know there is, why can't we sort of as Jews approach halakha with sort of an a la carte type view where I say, hey, you know, I really like the way the Sephardi rule on that I can have rice at Pesach. And I really like this rabbi's opinion that I only need to wait three hours after having a meat meal before I have dairy. Why can't I just pick and choose if they're all wise scholarly individuals? Why can't I just choose the one that fits me best? So we'll bring on Rabbi Yacobian, and he is going to clarify this for us. And I'm sure, my friends, when this episode is over, we are going to be so much wiser as a result. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed. 
where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for that introduction. Proper rabbi, I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, we strive and we try to be as learned as possible, but we uh, do not profess to be what God expected from what a rabbi should be, that we actually play that role. The rabbi, as I mentioned to you before, is always called in Hebrew, Talmid Chacham, a student of the scholars, and we are students, and we're always trying to continue to learn. There's a lot more to this topic than uh, it's possible to explain in uh, even one hour. Uh, introductions uh, as to pretty much any topic in the world, not just Torah. Proper introductions have to be given and understood and introductions that are digested well in order for a person to understand the details that stem from those general uh, guidelines. So again, uh, please take everything that's being said here with a certain level of, uh, of ambiguity, with a grain of salt, and okay. things can always be explained in different ways, but I think we will have some clarity to some extent uh, going through uh, this, this very, very fundamental and important topic. Excellent. I, second thing I want to say is that important topics like this have to be clear. If they're not clear, it is the problem with the teacher. So it is important to clarify what halakha, how halakha exactly works. And uh, if it's not clear, it's on us. So please uh, stop me at any point if you feel something is uh, not clear or ambiguous. I, I will. That's what makes me a great host is that I'm slower than the rest of the Jews who are listening. So if I don't understand it, I'll ask the question and make sure that everything's clear. Good. In the introduction, I may forget the specific questions that you had in the beginning. So at the end, try to bring me back to see if we answered those uh, questions. Right. One last thing you mentioned about one person sinning and one person uh, worshiping God. No, you could have two people saying different opinions and both of them being completely in the right. And that is an important fundament to understand and we'll explain as we go through the introduction. Okay. Well, I do want to clarify that question. Yes. Or what I was saying. Okay. Yes, the rabbis make their opinion, but the students are required to follow their rabbi. Like that's one of the questions when you had me do the yes. when when Sean went through a conversion, became Elisheva, and you had me do the go in the mikvah, the yes. just to you know play it safe, make sure there was uh, no loose ends in my lineage. One of the things you asked me was finding your rabbi yes. and following his halakhic opinions. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So we already jumped the gun to the, to the authority of the rabbis. And that is, spreads to many different topics, uh, not just Jewish law. See, human nature is a factor that must be taken into play. And you can have, I'm just using extremes, two different types of people, more than two. But there are two different types of people when it comes to this topic and worshiping of God in general. You have the one who's looking for finding Rabbi Noach. Do you know who Rabbi Noach is? No, I do Noach in Hebrew means comfortable. Okay. He's trying to find Rabbi comfortable. If you're trying to worship Hashem and you find an opinion that makes sense to you with your breadth of knowledge and depth of knowledge and you feel that that opinion should be lenient, then all the power to you. Phenomenal. You know the topic. You know the Torah. You know how the whole body works. You're a general practitioner and you're a specialist in the heart. And you think that in this area... 
this should be the law based on your understanding. Great, fantastic. The Torah was set up, the, the Talmud was set up in a way, and the Torah in general, for you to be able to figure some things out for yourself. Some things. Okay. Not the fundamentals and not the fundamental guidelines of halacha. Nevertheless, there are many people who are always looking for every leniency. They're not looking to worship God. They're looking for as much as possible not to be penalized by transgressing what God wants and always have an excuse to say, oh, but there is such an opinion. That's not worshiping Hashem. We, don't, we prefer not to even talk to such individuals. And these individuals are extremely common. People who are always looking for the rabbi who's lenient. We're not looking for leniency. We're not looking for stringencies. We're looking to find to the best of our ability what it is that Hashem wants of us. And someone who is passionate about that, Hashem will help him find the halakha. Let me give you a midrash. I know we haven't yet structured things in a proper way, but I'll give you an interesting midrash. Okay. King David was also a judge. And the midrash says that King David had a, the Talmud brings this down, had two advisors. One was his, one was King Saul's. His advisor was named Achitofel. And Achitofel, the Tanakh says, the Bible says, that when he gave you counsel, it was foolproof, just like you asked the breastplate of the high, high priest of the Kohen. And Achitofel was way smarter than King David. But Achitofel was not successful in always coming to the conclusion of what the law was. And King David always, always, the law was like him in every case. Whatever he came out saying that this is the law, he was right. Not necessarily because of how he came to that. I remember in school, I used to do the calculations for mathematics and one of the things was the teacher wanted to see how you came to your conclusion. He had a lot of flaws in how he came to the conclusion, but his conclusion was always right. Doeg was the head of the Sanhedrin of Saul. And it says about him the same thing. But the law wasn't like him. It was like David. And David's greatest power, his greatest characteristic trait, he was the master of reverence of God. As he writes in Psalms, Moshel Beir Atelokim. He was in complete control of his reverence of the Creator. Someone who has reverence will always be assisted in doing the right thing and coming down to the right conclusion. Someone who doesn't have reverence for the Torah and those that represent it will not come to the right conclusion, even if he may be a genius. Okay, so question. How did the rest know that King David was correct? Because the courts later on accepted his ruling as the ruling. Okay. And even they said... King David's own teacher, his name was Mephibosheth, which literally means from my, mouth, from my mouth comes shame. Every time David would ask his own teacher, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Jonathan, younger than him, as to what the law was, he'd tell him, you're right about the law, but the way, the way you analyzed it was completely off. But he was always right about the law. Okay. The reason for this is, and, and kind of to answer this whole question, is that the law may be simple, Its application is very complex because just like in medicine, you have to take so many variables and factors into play. And there's only so much sometimes that you know. So then what the law is in a specific situation is very much dependent on who are the people that are asking the question and what factors are playing a role. Let me give you an example. A very good example where you could see two things as one. And both opinions are correct. Everyone agrees. That China 
the material, mm-hmm. a porcelain, does not need to go to the mikveh. Uh, dishes have to go to the mikveh, metal and rabbinically glass. But everyone agrees that China does not need to go to the mikveh. That's okay. Nevertheless, you'll find many people, Ashkenazim usually, that they do take their China to the mikveh, just don't make a blessing. The reason, all China today pretty much is glazed with a very thin glaze of glass. So now, is it glass or is it China? Now, if you tell me it's glass, then for the laws of kosher, glass is not porous. And therefore, if you mistakenly use it for meat when it's a milk dish, then you're fine. But you won't find anyone adhering to that concept. Ideally, China is China. And if it was a mix between meat and milk, that's it. So is it glass or is it not glass? Its real material is China, but it's glazed with glass. If it's glass, it must go to the mikveh. But if it's glass, it also doesn't apply to the rules of messing it up if you use it with non-kosher or meat and milk. Right. And if it's not glass, then it doesn't need to go to the mikveh. And really, you could see both opinions. You could really see both opinions. I mean, we got weird cases where you can have electricity. Is it fire? The Torah says not to use fire. Is electricity fire? What is fire? How do you define fire? Is it an act of building, as the Chazonish says? Because you're creating a circuit, then opening a door, Sadr Shlomo Zalman, is also an act of building. You can have a lot of areas of Jewish law, and we can go with another 10,000 examples. Okay. And even big things, fertility. Someone does uh, fertility treatment. What if it's a married woman with her husband, and they're getting a donation from somewhere else? Is this adultery? And if it isn't, is the child a Kohen if the donor is a Kohen? Are you even allowed to do that? Interesting. Is it a, there's so many questions that never existed before. Yeah. And throughout the generations, these questions and others like them, some of which could have been thought, but they never came up, so it wasn't ruled on. And some of which could not have been thought because the concepts, the, the new innovations never existed. So you can really have very, very strong questions that you could see both sides, and you cannot say one is right and one is wrong. But there is the third opinion which is wrong, and that's the opinion of someone who went to ask Rav Noach, the comfortable rabbi. There, you're always wrong, because one reason and one reason only. You're not looking to serve Hashem, and when you don't look to serve Hashem, Hashem makes sure that you don't know what He wants, and the halacha is not like you. That's one extreme. Then you have the second extreme, the one who doesn't know and therefore always says, be strict because he doesn't want to look like he doesn't know. Or the one who is so passionate about God that he's so strict that he'll be lenient on laws of interpersonal laws. He'll be so strict that he'll make his family's life miserable. He's so strict that he will make his household miserable. He'll be so strict that he thinks that the rabbi is too lenient. That's very common for recent Bali Tshuva, for people who just became observant and they're so passionate about it that when they see that the rabbi is lenient in certain cases because he knows the factors involved, they'll say, oh, this rabbi, I guess he's a little bit too modern for my taste. And this is called, in Talmudical terms, we have this concept already from the times of the Talmud, Am Ha'aretz Chasid, a ignoramus who is pious. It says it is so bad, don't live in his neighborhood. Am Ha'aretz Chasid, Al Tadur Bishkunato. He's going to make your life miserable. He's going to tattletale on you with a mantle of righteousness because he thinks he is the Messiah somewhere in the back of his mind and the rabbi is a fool. Happens way more than people realize. Wow. These are the two extremes. Okay. And then you have, like you said, 
the balanced person, which you could see in their traits, their natural inclination, that they're balanced, that they understand. Usually it takes a couple of years with experience in being married. (laughs) (laughs) And that individual comes and really asks, understanding that he may or may not understand why the ruling is what it is. And there are many factors that have to be taken into play. Sometimes the community is a factor that is taken into play. And I'll give you an example. I know we're going a little bit off. No, this is good. A guy comes and asks me, Rabbi, can I invite a non-Jew to my Shabbat table? My answer is absolutely not. You are you are making your Shabbat table impure. You are defiling your table. And even during the week, you should never invite a Gentile into your home. Five minutes later, another guy comes and asks me, Rabbi, can I invite a Gentile to my home on Friday night? Say, Absolutely, no problem. Sure, go right ahead. Yeah, it's a mitzvah. Now what happened? First guy who was asking me comes from a certain culture that assimilation just started. His question really is, I have someone in my company that is dating a non-Jew. And I want to invite him. Can I do that? And the answer would be absolutely not. You're legitimizing assimilation. You're giving someone the stamp of approval that even though he's going out with someone who's not allowed to, you're accepting it. And therefore, you're strengthening his resolve in furthering his connection with potential assimilation. Second guy is asking that question because he really has a co-worker which is interested in understanding what Jews do culturally and he's coming. You never answer the question. You always answer the person. Right, okay. That makes sense. Okay, after this test introduction, let's go. Let's go, let's go to the basics. Okay. There almost isn't, believe it or not, any dispute in the law, not between Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, and not between Ashkenazim themselves, because it's not just Ashkenazim and Sfaradim. You'll find it between the Hungarians and the Lithuanians. The Germans, which have a very big tradition, like in meat and milk, German Jews and Dutch Jews, it's brought down in the Code of Jewish Law. Some of them had the tradition of waiting only one hour after meat, after actual red meat. Okay. And others from, uh, let's say, from Poland, which had their own tradition. You'll find in the laws uh, by, by Sephardim, Moroccans is different than Tunisians, who are different than Persians, who are way different than Yemenites. But that's not in the fundamental laws. That is not in the... of Jewish law. Because 90% of Jewish law, there is no dispute. The dispute is in all the what-ifs. And if you look at the code of Jewish law, most of it is in case of. The actual fundamentals, there really isn't much dispute. I would think that on something like how long to wait after eating meat, do you need to wait before you have dairy? That would be... No, that's just because people didn't didn't pick up on what was the actual biblical law. The biblical law is not to have meat and dairy together, to make a distinct separation between the two. Okay. Now, distinct separation is what? What is it because of and what is it? Is it because you can have sometimes meat stuck in your teeth, which is extremely common, and then if you have dairy, you're actually having meat and meat together? Right, true. And then you have to wait six hours because of the disintegration of the, of the meat inside the teeth, which is Rashi's opinion? Or is it because of, you know, when someone, after eating, there's a little bit of, like, some, a little bit comes back up. I don't know what the medical term for it is. Right. Uh, you know, and you still taste the meat. So there's like an aftertaste, even after you eat, which shows you that digestion hasn't happened, which is Maimonides' opinion. But the, the law is there has to be a separation 
real separation between after the meat, before the milk. What that separation is, the Talmud brings down an opinion that some people didn't eat the whole day until the next day. Now, for those who are looking to be lenient, I rarely remember someone trying to be so passionate about God's law that they would say, you know what, I'm going to follow that opinion, even though no one follows it. But the people are always looking to follow that opinion, which is only one hour, or maybe three hours. And sometimes, like I said before, I suspect it's not because they think that that's the true law, because they learned the whole topic, but it's because they're trying to find the easiest and fastest way out of the obligation of waiting between the steak and the ice cream. So this is where one has to be very careful as to who's asking the question and what their motive motive is. If you're looking to serve Hashem, the general rule is all biblical laws, don't take a chance, be strict. And rabbinical laws, if they are not very close to transgression of the biblical law, there is room to be lenient when there is a doubt. That's the general rule. Deoraita lehachmir, derabanan lehakel. Because many of the rabbinical laws are really there to protect the biblical. Now, if the interface is very close, then you don't want to take a chance with the rabbinical either. But if the interface is not so close, it's really a far decree, there we may find a lot of room to be lenient. And again, we will look at the motivation of the individual as to why it is that they feel the need to be lenient. Okay. One more thing. Please forgive me. I, I know... Well, we'll try to make a, a proper organization of what everything we're saying now. One has to remember that rabbinical laws, we make a blessing over them. Hanukkah candles. It's rabbinical, 100%. And what's the blessing? Baruch atah Hashem. Blessed are you, God. Elokeinu melech haolam. Asher kideshanu bebitzvotah. Blessed are you, Hashem, our King of the universe, that sanctified us with His commandments and commanded us to light Hanukkah candles. God never commanded us to light Hanukkah yes. candles. So how could you make such a blessing? Now, blessing in vain is one of the Ten Commandments, not to carry God's name in vain. And we make that blessing in many areas which are rabbinical. The reason is because in the Torah, in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, Parashat Shoftim, it says that anything that the judge of your days tells you that this is the law of the brothers, the Sanhedrin, whatever the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin tells you, you are, I, God, command you to listen to them. Do not stray from what they tell you right or left. According to the Torah that they teach you, and according to the actions that they tell you you shall do, do not stray right and left. And the man that will shall be put to death. He's talking about one of the elders who decides, the elders themselves who goes against what the Sanhedrin said. That means if the Sanhedrin ruled on something, it's if the court of Israel ruled on something, I, God, command you to listen. So when we make a blessing up that God sanctified us, to listen to him by the lighting of candles of Hanukkah, we are saying that commanded us to listen to the Sanhedrin that commanded us to light the candles of Hanukkah. So rabbinical laws are biblical. Because Hashem gave them a proxy Correct. on his behalf on these matters. Correct, okay. the Sanhedrin. Okay. What the role of rabbis today, of sages today is, is to compare cases to old cases or to create their own community guidelines that all communities have accepted to adhere to if they are living over there. Okay, but like this this idea of not mixing meat and milk. Obviously, Hashem never gave us instructions that were just nonsensical, just to see if we would do it, to see if we would obey. There's some fundamentals, like there's, there's something very 
harmful to us, either spiritually and or physically, by introducing meat and milk into our system at the same time. Maybe. And maybe not. Maybe not. Why do you always have to find the reason for the law? The the Almighty has a, a, a purpose behind all these. Why should I care about the purpose? Are you doing it because of the good reason, or are you doing it because you want to do the will of your Creator? Well, yes, I, I agree. I mean, it's like the red heifer. Like we don't understand. We don't need to understand why. We just know the Almighty gives us a mitzvah, and we know that He's doing it for our benefit. And theoretically, if it wasn't for your benefit, theoretically, if you He would do what a parent does to his child, just test him if he will listen, and there's actually no benefit in it. So you'd still be doing the greatest act and the only act that's important, the act of serving the will of your creator. Right. All the rationale okay. is irrelevant. Okay, good point. Good point. Okay. Naseh v'dishma. But first naseh. Right, right. We'll do it then we'll, we'll hear. And in that regard, there's really no difference between lighting Shabbat candles or marriage. Both are commandments from God. They're equal in the fact that you're listening to your creator. And again, that's a fundament that today people move to the side instead of it being the real ultimate reason why we should do any law. They're all equal. There's no difference between the laws. And Pierre Cavill says this, the small one and the big one should be equal in your eyes. It says because you don't know the worth of them. But the bottom line is, every time we do a mitzvah, we say, I hereby come to give nachat, to give satisfaction to my creator by doing his will. We're doing God's will. Right. You're, we're, make, we're making a conscious choice to, to choose him. Yes. Now let's go back to the fundamentals. The biblical laws are clear. We are clear in the 613 mitzvot as to what they are. I mean, which one is one of the 613 is already like, there's opinions as to exactly which, which ones are in the, in the counting of the 613. But the biblical laws are, are pretty much 99% clear. There are some that we, because we did them for so long, we don't know if it's biblical or rabbinical or there's a rabbinical angle to it as well. Because we just always did them. But an we example? Never, an example would be the tefillin of Rashi and the tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam. There's two pairs of tefillin. The Ari says they were both always tefillin that everyone put. At some point, our question was, which one was the main one? Which one is the real, the, the real one? Which one is the one with which we fulfill our obligation? And which one is the added one? But the Rabbi Vital writes that it was both. They used to put them both down. The Benish Chai brings this down. That both were put down. And some say, some say, that really the order is not biblical. It is rabbinical. As long as you have all four parashiot inside, is biblical. Now, what's the reason that we lost the tradition? Because it really made no difference. We always put them on. We put all of them, we put them on. We were particular putting them on. So we didn't remember which one was the biblical one and which one was the additional one that was extra credit. So we lost that tradition. And there's a dispute. Is it Rashi's opinion, which is the... Biblical one with which you fulfill your obligation or Rabbin Tam. But besides those types of details and examples, we pretty much know what is biblical and what is rabbinical, and we are extremely particular in writing down that this is biblical and this is rabbinical. We're not hiding from something being rabbinical or biblical. Sometimes we really try to figure out the details if they're biblical or rabbinical. Let me give you another example of where. Not 100% of it's biblical or rabbinical. Okay. On Shabbat, to do a prohibition, on the 39 prohibitions, it has to have a constructive purpose. If it's destructive, then it is not a biblical desecration of Shabbat. I'll give you an example. Okay. Breaking a wall, is it 
destructive or constructive? So it depends. If I'm breaking it to make a window, then it's constructive. But if I'm breaking it because I just want to break a wall, then it's destructive. Okay. Now, my intent will also change. Is this a rabbinical or a biblical prohibition? Not according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda writes, even if you do something, you're digging a, a hole in the ground, which is an act of plowing. And you're only doing it for the sand. You're not, you don't want the hole. You don't, you don't care about the plowing. According to Rabbi Yehuda, once you do the action, and it is plowing, a prohibition, a creative act, that you don't need its intent, according to Rabbi Yehuda, if you do the act and it's equal to the act as though you did have intention, it's biblically prohibited. You know, I see the dispute. I get it. I understand where there would be a question. If the act is the same act, and bottom line, there is a constructive angle to it, even though I meant for it to be destructive, maybe it still is constructive, and therefore it's biblically prohibited. Now, this not being clarified in the last 2,000 years, it's already refined in the times of the Mishnah that they discussed it. Okay, you know, it doesn't shake my trust in that the system was passed down. Because even the question was passed down. If there is a doubt and there is a question, that question was put as part of our tradition to discuss. Is it biblical or is it rabbinical? And that will have its effect when someone comes and asks me a question. I will take that into consideration that according to this would be rabbinical and according to that would be biblical, but really not in this case because the Talmud does come to a conclusion. Not like Rabbi Yehuda. That when you do a a destructive act, even if it comes out, there's an angle of construction to it, but you didn't intend for that, it is not biblically prohibited. Maimonides Paskins otherwise. He actually says like Rabbi Yehuda, which is thrown into the formula of when we answer a question. There's a lot for a scholar to know before they answer a question. But the question is actually a very, very good question. Not one that necessarily was written down or discussed when they passed down the oral law, even though they passed it down very, very diligently and not like a, God forbid, a broken telephone with testing people if they understood everything and they remembered everything and only giving the smicha, only giving the, the authority to teach to someone that we felt really knew their information very well. Thank you for listening to part one of Extrapolating Our Torah with Rabbi Yacobian. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of part two. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.